to thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. I want to thank DJ. You know, one thing I've learned about your pastor is he hardly ever speaks his mind. Have you noticed that? When we're gathered with our group of pastors, I don't think he has an unexpressed thought. And it keeps it mighty lively as we have our times together. So I know he brings a lot of joy to you, not only because of his unique giftedness and personality, but because he's an incredible preacher of the Word. And I know that's a huge blessing to you in having a pastor like that. But he has let me share just a few minutes about Sin Relief. It's probably the newest ministry in our convention of churches. just began three and a half years ago. And it's all about meeting needs so that we see God changing lives in the process. And the, the mission of Sin Relief is to serve churches like you, the Church at the Mill and churches all over the globe as you carry out Christ's great commission through ministries of compassion. And there are five key focuses of Sin Relief. One is strengthening communities, which really deals a lot with hunger issues, building water wells uh, in areas of third world nations where there's no clean water, but seeking to meet those real needs that strengthen a community of people. Secondly, is ministry to refugees. The biggest undertaking we've had in our first three and a half years is ministering to Ukrainian refugees. Over six million Ukrainians fled that country as Russia invaded, and they've come into all kinds of churches in Eastern Europe and throughout Europe. And we're serving the churches that are going to be there long after the crisis as they're meeting the needs of those people when they're incredibly open to the good news of Jesus Christ when they've lost everything. Third is ministry to children and families. We help churches like yours develop adoption ministries and foster care ministries to meet the needs of children that are left out in your community. Fourth is battling human trafficking, probably the grossest evil in our day-to-day. -day. And in rescuing these young gals that come out of that decadent lifestyle, that really a modern form of slavery, if you will. There's all kinds of emotional baggage and hurt that goes with that. And that's one of our areas of focus. And then fifth, where we're probably best known, is in disaster or crisis relief. And here we work with state conventions like the South Carolina Convention and your disaster relief ministry. And when big crises occur, we're there providing supplies, providing food, providing roofing materials, providing all kind of resources to help in a time like that. And it's not just domestically. What is so unique about Sin Relief, it's the first time ever that our International Mission Board and our North American Mission Board have joined together to have a joint ministry together. I was just in Israel a few weeks ago in the midst of that war as we're providing all kinds of help to displace Israelis who are seeking shelter as they've had to flee their homes in the north because of Hezbollah and in the south because of Hamas. And it's just a way that we show the love of Christ to a people that need to know the good news of Christ as they go through a crisis. So I hope you'll go to our website at sinrelief.org. You can find out more about how you can volunteer for one of our mission trips or one of our ministries or just find out more how you can support it. And one of the great things about Sin Relief is because all of us are a part of either the International Mission Board staff or the North American Mission Board staff, all of our personnel, all of our overhead is covered through your gifts, through our cooperative program, our Lottie Moon offering, our Annie Armstrong offering. And that way, when people give to Sin Relief, 100% of the gift goes directly to ministry. And not too many ministries like this can make that claim. 
So thankful to be representing this ministry and thankful for a church like yours that supports global missions because it allows us to show the love of Christ as we share the good news of Christ. One thing I constantly remind our staff of is, you know, we can help hurting people on their journey to hell and miss the greatest need in their life, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is central to what we're doing. But I know you haven't come to hear about sin relief today. You've come to hear a word from the Lord from the Word of God. And I love what your pastor DJ is doing and leading you in this, this series around Christmas entitled, He Is, from Colossians 1. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians 1. You have already covered verses 15 through 18. Today we're going to look at verse 19 of Colossians 1. And then on Christmas Eve, DJ is going to lead you in a study of verse 20. But let's just think real quickly to review what you've covered. First of all, Jesus Christ in verse 15 is the image of the invisible God, the way you see God, and he is the creator of all. In other words, he's your creator. He's the creator of all that you see. But not only that, he is what holds all of creation together. And not only that, as you continue on in seeking to understand what these verses are saying, it's very clear in verse 18 that he's the head of the church. And he is the firstborn of the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it's very clear. His resurrected body is really a picture of what, the, what we're going to receive in our resurrected bodies when Jesus comes for us in the rapture right before his second coming in judgment. And that gives us great hope in knowing what Jesus has done in conquering death that we too will one day receive a resurrected body like he is. But not only that, he is preeminent in our faith. And in these first two messages, and looking at verses 1 through 18, uh, 15 through 18 in Colossians 1, you see a picture of who he is, who Jesus is. So let's reflect as we look at what God's Word says to get a clear picture of who Jesus is, as today in verse 19, we see that he is the spitting image of God. And out of respect for the Lord, if you're physically able, will you stand with me now for the reading of God's Word from Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is in the beginning the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. And then verse 19, our focus for today. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And then in a preview of Christmas Eve, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. Father, as we stand before you, knowing that you are our creator, we pray now as we reflect on your words in Colossians 1.19 that you'll give us a better understanding of how it is your pleasure for your fullness to dwell in Jesus so that we can understand you and know you and have a better understanding of why you have come to be a man, to be a savior for us. So, Lord, may you speak to us now through your word today. For we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Long time to stand through the message. I want you to look at this picture. You may think that that's the picture of a young man, handsome young man. Who is this? Well, on your right is Prince William, the future king of England, and on your left is Prince George, another future king of England, the son of Prince William. And I like the fact that Prince William and Kate have chosen the name George. That's my first name. Our oldest son is George Brightwright III, and he was the only student in his school, in elementary school, middle school, and high school that was named George, only one. But I'm glad they've chosen that name, George. It's a, it's a name for kings and presidents, a good name. But I hope that what you see here is that young George is a spitting image of his father, William, when he was the same age. Now, what do we mean by this statement, the spitting image? Well, it comes from the African-American culture in the 18th century, really out of the slave culture. And what it means is to look at a son who looks a lot like his father, who acts a lot like his father, and they would say of the young man, he is a spitting image of his father. And what does that mean now? It means that he is the spirit and the image of his father. It means he has a personality like his father, and he looks like his father. You may have people here at the Church of the Mill, when you think of a father-son, they come to your mind and thinking, you know, look at that young man. He is a spitting image of his dad. Well, understanding that as we are in the midst of this series, as you're being led in this series by your pastor here, a series entitled He Is, we realize that he is, Jesus is, the spitting image of his Father of God. Now, look at verse 19 of Colossians 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, it is the will of God. It is the pleasure of God. It is the desire of God for the fullness of God to dwell in him. Now, what does that mean? The fullness of God. I want us to look at some texts in Scripture in the Old and New Covenant that help us to have an understanding of what the fullness of God is as you think about who Jesus is. Keep your finger there at Colossians 1 and turn to page 1 of your Bible. Page 1. Genesis 1. It's an easy book to find. You may be struggling to find Colossians, although if you've been here three weeks here at the Church at the Mill, I hope by now you know where Colossians is. But Genesis 1 is easy. Page 1, verse 1, we see an understanding of the fullness of God. Verse 1 of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, I don't know whether you realize it, but, but the first four verses of the first four verses of all of Scripture are the most radically countercultural verses you may ever read. In the beginning, God, because the dominant view of creation and beginning times in Western culture is evolution. Just things just happen by chance. Things just always have been. They've just been evolving by chance all through the years. But the Bible doesn't make an argument. It just makes a statement of fact. In the beginning, God. In other words, if you want to go back to the beginning and understand all of creation, you go back to the beginning and realize God is there. It's not like God was invented. God always is. He always was. He always will be. And it tells us in verse 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. An incredible claim. Now, think for a moment about the greatness of God creating the heavens. I want you to look at a picture on the screen of the Milky Way, our galaxy. And as you see that picture, it, it really shows you millions of stars that could represent suns like our sun. Whether they're planets around those stars, we don't know at this point. But that, that's just one galaxy, folks. Scientists or astronomers estimate they're anywhere from 100 billion to 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. And so right from the beginning in Genesis 1-1, God's Word tells us and reveals to us, in the beginning is God, and in the beginning God has created all the heavens. You go to the Psalms, you see that He has named the stars. He knows the name of all the stars. He knows what He has done in all of creation. I don't know about you. But that's pretty incredible. That's a mighty big God. Have you ever thought about how many stars there are? Well, let me show you an estimate on the screen of how many stars there are. The belief is there are about 300 sextillion stars. That's three with about 22 or 23 zeros after it. It's a number I can't even grasp. But that is how big our God is and that he has created the heavens. But he also has created the earth. And as you see a picture of the earth, you begin to grasp that even though the earth is mighty big and while I'm traveling all around the globe these days and representing sin relief, I realize and reminded and looking at the earth in regards to the stars that it's just a small little creation of God even though it seems incredibly large to all of us. We have a big God that has created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus tells us as we pray to God in the model prayer that is found in Matthew 6 to call him Father. But then we look at verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Here we see God is the Holy Spirit. He is not only the Father who has created all the heavens and the earth, but he is the Holy Spirit. Now, realize there was no earth as we know it then. And evidently from verse 2, water, H2O, was the first thing that God created here. And we see it as the Holy Spirit that is the master artist, the second person of the Trinity, that is the master artist as the wind or the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for wind and the Spirit of God is the same word. You go to Pentecost in Acts 2, you see the wind was a mighty rushing wind when the Holy Spirit filled the apostles there at the beginning of the church. 
And so we see the wind is doing its master artist work, the Spirit of God going over the waters. And look at a globe, look at a globe, look at Africa, look at South America. It's almost like that land has been pulled apart, just fitting together at one point, now pulled apart out of the water. God took this formless void and created the earth, and the Holy Spirit is the master artist of that. But that is not all. Look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Question, question. How can there be light if the sun was not created till the fourth day? This is the first day. God said, let there be light, and there was light, but there's no sun. Where does the sun come from? Where does the light come from? Well, the light that is being described here is not the sun, S-U-N, it is the sun, S-O-N. Jesus says in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And understanding that, we recognize he is not just enlightenment or understanding about God, but he is an actual light. And if you don't believe that, let me read to you from Revelation chapter 22, 5, after Christ has returned and we see the end of the earth and all that we see in the heavens as we know it, there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth, and we see it described here in Revelation 22, 5. Listen to the Word of God. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have a need of a light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, I hope what you're seeing to understand the fullness of God as described in Colossians 1.19 is that He is God the Father, He is God the Holy Spirit, and He is God the Son. And if you want to understand the fullness of God, you've got to understand that we have one God in three persons. This is how we best understand the fullness of God. And it goes right back to the very beginning. But it's also interesting to note that the word for God in verse 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim. And it means the supreme one. It means the plurality of one. Plurality. Isn't that interesting? In the very verse, verse of the Bible, a lot of people feel like the Trinity, God is one God in three persons, is only taught in the New Covenant. No, it is taught from the very first few verses of Genesis. As you talk to your Jewish friends and they accuse Christians of believing in three gods, you say, no, no. Let's go back to page one of your Bible and my Bible, and we will see that God is Father, God is Spirit, God is Son, right there in the first three verses. But that is not all. We also realize as you go to verse 26 and 27 that there is more picture, a, a greater clarity in this picture of God is three in one. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky over the cattle over all the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them now why this is significant is it gives us a greater clarity that God is one God in three persons because here we see the plurality of God. Once again, that word Elohim 
describing the one true God. And God said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. So from the very beginning of Scripture, we see that God is one God in three persons. And really for the human mind, we will never completely grasp the Trinity. Some will argue with you that the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible. The word Trinity is not. But the concept of God as one God in three persons is all through the Scriptures from the beginning to the end. And we see an example of this in Genesis 1. You want to understand the fullness of God that Colossians 1.19 is talking about that is seen in Jesus? Well, understand He is one God in three persons, and it also helps us to understand ourselves. God comes to the masterpiece of His creation on the sixth day, and He makes man. And he tells us man is in the image of God. What does that mean? That means in the likeness of God. And what does that mean? Well, he's very clear in verse 27. In the image of God is both male and female. It's not just men, guys. Male and female are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. That's the likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we've been given power to rule over all the earth. We're to be conservationists. Now, there are a lot of environmentalists who want to worship the creation versus worshiping the creator. And then you move into idolatry that gets all kind of confusion. But we are to be conservationists. We are to rule over all of creation. That is the responsibility of man. And so we see this described here. There's power. There is ruling, but that's not all. To be in the image of God means that we have the ability to reason. We have an appreciation of language, appreciation of beauty. We also have the ability to create. You know, there are not too many elephants that can build great bridges over rivers. I know some of you love your dogs. My, you know, my wife, she loves our dogs. She loves our dogs. But I constantly remind her there's not a whole lot of communication with those dogs. Oh, she says, yes, they, they understand me. I said, yeah, but they don't really speak back to you in a way that human beings can. It's a different kind of ability beyond the rest of the animal kingdom. But not only that, we have a moral sense. Some of you have probably made the statement, you know, people have no values anymore, and bless your heart, you don't realize how silly that statement is. That's completely untrue. Everybody has values. The mafia has values. People that espouse the politically correct wokeness philosophy of life, which is a man-made value system, they believe passionately in their values. Everybody has values because man created in the image of God has a sense of moral oughtness. But why do problems arise? Well, the problems begin to arise when man began to sin. And you keep reading in Genesis, go to chapter 3. We don't have time to go to it this morning. But in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see where Adam and Eve sinned against God because they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be in God's position, which is really the devil's mindset. He wants to usurp God. He wants to be in place of God. And once that occurred, once that original sin occurred, all of the human race was infected by sin. And all of us are natural-born sinners. 
And if you don't believe that, I know some of you, this is kind of offensive to some of you to think about little children two or three years old, but if you don't believe in original sin, just work in the nursery for a while. You know, those, those children, they're as lovely and as cute as they are. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to be egocentric. Me, mine, and all that is found right there in the nursery, right here even at the church in the mill, at this church. Can you imagine? Because all of us are created as natural-born sinners. We have inherited that natural-born sin nature from Adam and Eve. And because of that, we need a Savior to save us from ourselves, to save us from man-made value systems that get so confused that even lead into madness as we see in everyday culture today. We need a Savior. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we see a scene in Luke 1 beginning in verse 30 where an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, is appearing to this young teenage Jewish girl in Nazareth. I was just there a few weeks ago. And there in Nazareth, this young virgin teenager, just minding her own business there in Nazareth, has this appearance occur to her about what is going to happen in her life. And look at verse 30 as we see this because you're not going to be able to understand the fullness of God, the pleasure of God, the will of God in putting all of his fullness in Christ until we understand his supernatural conception. Look at verse 30. The angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, I know there's not a man here that can really put yourself in the shoes of Mary, but at least the women here can understand. You're, you're maybe 13, 15 years old teenager. You're a virgin. This man appears to you, says you're going to give birth. Well, you know, you think the people in the first century didn't know a lot about life. They knew how babies were made. They, they understood that. And so here's this teenage girl having this man appear to her and says she's going to give birth to a child. And without ultrasound, the angel reveals the sex. You know, today some people have these reveal parties, you know, to reveal the sex, the gender of the child, which is kind of interesting in our world when a lot of people don't even want to recognize gender. But anyway, that's a side point. We don't need to go there. She finds out, she finds out that she's going to give birth to a son. And his name is to be Jesus, which means Savior. Now think about Genesis 1, we see the fullness of God in the Father, in the Holy Spirit, in the Son. We see that man is made in the image of God to be like God, but man has fallen off the cliff when it comes to sin. And here's the thing about sin. The further we run from God into sin, the more animalistic we are. The closer we are to God, the more we are living out the image of God or the likeness of God as he has created us to be. But being sinners with an infection that is deadly, we can't overcome that ourselves. So, God, at the perfect time in history, 
has humbled himself to become one of his own creation, not just one of his own creation, but to be born as a baby in the womb of this virgin Mary to be our Savior, to save us from our sin, to save us from ourselves. Now, I realize you're in a church, you're blessed to be in a church where the gospel is preached, the gospel is taught in your Bible studies. If you live in the South, you're going to hear the term gospel. I realize all that. But at the same time, it's easy to overlook what the gospel is. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ died for our sins and Christ rose from the dead. That is the gospel. That's what it is. But then your pastor DJ and other Bible teachers here and teaching pastors on your different campuses, they have to elaborate on what that means. In other words, if Christ died for our sins, why is Jesus dying for our sins? Well, he came to be our Savior. Yeah, but how does he have the authority to die for our sins? Well, he came to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. In other words, you and I deserve the judgment of God, which is death. And yet Christ came to die for our sins on the cross to save us from our sins so that we could be made right with God. Well, how did he have the authority to do this? Well, look at what the angel Gabriel says to Mary. It says, he will be named Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. In other words, once again, Jesus, he is the Son of God. He is not just a man, but he is clearly God. Jesus did not begin at the supernatural conception. Jesus always was, is, and will be. But this is the first time in all of history, at the perfect time in history, that God takes on human flesh. That was new. And that is what is occurring here so that you and I can see the fullness of God in his Son who has been sent to be our Savior. But then, it goes on here, and we see some things that did not happen with Jesus. Look at what it said in verse 32b. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, that didn't happen. Is the word of God wrong? Absolutely not. Now, listen, are you listening? Don't miss this. There is no differentiation all through the Old Testament prophets with the first and second coming of Jesus. In one verse, in one verse, you can see the prophet filled with the Holy Spirit telling us insight about the coming Messiah, and it shifts from the first coming to the second coming. Think about Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Well, that didn't happen with Jesus. The government wasn't upon his shoulders. Yes, he was born as a little child. Yes, he is the son of God that was given to us. But here we see the same thing. The, the spirit of God through the angel Gabriel is telling her, look, there are more plans for your son. And they are yet to come. And we see in the second half of this revelation of who he is in the supernatural conception that is occurring in the womb of Mary we see a picture of the second coming. You know, one of the burdens I have as an older pastor is how little pastors today are teaching the scriptures about the second coming of Christ. Even in Bible-believing churches, I know that wouldn't happen here with DJ, but in so many Bible-believing churches, 
We see that skate just totally ignoring. It's kind of like you going to a ball game and your team is ahead at halftime and you decide to go home because it's like stopping at the cross and the resurrection and the whole second half of the unfolding drama of who Jesus is is not focused on. And you're leaving out the big win at the end. Because look at what it tells us about the second coming of Jesus. God's word through the angel Gabriel tells us the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Well, what is that? Well, the Messiah is going to reign from the throne of David. Well, where is that? It is in Jerusalem. What is so exciting to go to Israel today is when you're in Jerusalem, you realize it, not New York, not Beijing, not London, England, not Moscow, but Jerusalem is the most important city in all of the earth. Nothing comes close because God chose to invade history there in Israel years ago to where his son became our savior on the cross and through his resurrection right there in that area of Jerusalem. But one day he is going to come back and he is going to reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. But that is not all. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. What does that mean? Well, the house of Jacob is the house of Israel. And one of the things you know today, if you go to Israel, is that most Israelis today are either secular Jews, many who don't even believe in God, they're just ethnic Jewish, or they are ultra-Orthodox Jews, bound in their religious legalism, both groups are lost. That is the overwhelming majority of Jews in Israel today. Now, when I was there, it was very exciting to hear from some of the folks that are working with Jewish people there in Israel that they believe there may be as many as 30,000 Messianic Jews in Israel today. That's still a small portion of their population, but it is incredible growth over the last 50 years. And what we see and what you know from Scripture is if later on, if you will study in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, and study other passages like Romans chapter 11, especially verses 25 and 26. When Christ comes again, he is going to come in judgment on the Antichrist who has gathered the troops from nations all around the world. And what is the plan of the Antichrist there? Why did he choose Armageddon in the middle of Israel? Because Israel is there. And all through history, you will see that Antichrist-type figures have a hostility and hatred of the Jews because God loves the Jews. Even though there is a large, overwhelming mass of the Jewish population that does not trust God in Christ today. But you see in Romans eleven twenty-five to 26 that when Christ comes to save them from total extermination and destruction through the Antichrist leadership and his one world governance, by then the U.S. will long be off the scene as the biggest defender of Israel. And if you don't feel that couldn't happen in the United States, just think about the news stories over the last few weeks. It's going to happen. And when that occurs, they will be without hope and cry out for God to send them the Messiah, and he will. It is Jesus who saves them from extermination and they will be a groundswell of repentance in the one true God, the fullness of God that is seen in his son, Jesus. And Israel will come to repentant faith in Christ, and it will be glorious. And that is what is being prophesied to Mary on that occasion. But also look at the ending of what he says about her son. His kingdom will have no end. Now, 
if you do a little study, I realize some of you here are not believers in Christ. Some of you don't know much about the Bible, but some of you do. And if you've studied your New Testament, you know that Jesus said many times the kingdom of God was dawning with him. In other words, it was the beginning of the kingdom of God when God took on flesh and the greatness of God shows us his fullness in the person of Christ. It was the dawning of the kingdom of God. But it is not till Christ comes again that we see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God as God finally brings peace on earth and gives us a world. Now listen, are you listening? And gives us a world like all of us deep down inside long for it to be. Can you imagine no more wars? No more violence in the street? No more abortions? Can you imagine a world where families get along versus being dysfunctional? You may not be a believer that's a part of this worship today. But I really believe deep down inside you're longing for a world like that. And when Christ comes again, that's what it will be like. So, that's another reminder why we need to study biblical prophecy and the events around the second coming of Christ because you don't want to stop in the biblical story like you're leaving a football game right after halftime when your team's in the lead and miss out on the glorious second half of what is to come and the hope that we have in Jesus. And we see in this description here the fullness of God is being poured into his son Jesus. Well, how does Mary respond to that? She said, look, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, she understood how babies were made, and she knew she was a virgin. How can this be? And look at what the angel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Here we go again. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Are you beginning to get a picture of the fullness of God? Do you see it now? Recognizing this, let us recognize in the incarnation in John 1.14, we see the Word became flesh, not just supernaturally conceived in the womb of Mary where Jesus is fully God and fully man. But then we see Jesus walking on earth. And the perfect picture of God's grace and truth, grace in giving us something we don't deserve, which is forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, when we deserve the judgment of God. But He is also perfect truth truth that is seen in the person of Jesus. So, how do you want to see the fullness of God? Look at Jesus. In John 14, 8, it's very clear that when Philip, one of the disciples, was saying to Jesus, show us the Father. And what does Jesus do? Look at that verse on the screen. Jesus says, look, if you see me, you see the Father. In other words, if you see me, Jesus says, you see the fullness of God. 
So understanding that, we recognize that in Christ, understanding who he is, we see the heavenly Father. But we also see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What is it that occurs when a person accepts Christ? We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the more we grow in Christ, the more we begin to take on, listen now, the character and the spirit of Jesus. And then the more we're in the image of God. You see, God says it is his pleasure for his fullness to dwell in Jesus. And when you and I accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us to give us a desire to be more and more like Jesus. And then you and I, now listen, you and I then can reflect more of the spitting image of God through Christ, not through ourselves, but through understanding the fullness of God. God said the fullness of God should dwell in him. Do you know what dwelling is? Last night I stayed in a hotel. Y'all provided a hotel for me to come here to preach today. And it was clean. Had a bed, bathroom, basic needs. I was thankful for that hotel. But I don't want to live there. It's temporary. The dwelling that God speaks of of his son is permanent. I want to live in my home there in North Atlanta. I feel at home there. It's a permanent dwelling place. You probably want to live in your home as well. Well, in Colossians 1, that leads us all the way back to our text for today, God's Word said, it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell, in other words, to permanently inhabit His Son, who always is, was, and will be, but took on flesh so that you and I can see the fullness of God in Him. And next Sunday, on Christmas Eve, DJ has that incredible privilege of telling you why Jesus came, why he was born, to be our Savior. So the question of the day is, do you believe in Christ? Have you put your faith in him? Colossians 1 gives us a picture of who he is. But have you decided to put your trust in him? And for those of you who have, and many here have, may this Christmas be richer and more fulfilling in meaning when you now understand in a deeper way than before who he is. Jesus is the spitting image of our Heavenly Father. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for showing us your fullness, your richness, your greatness, your majesty, your love, your grace, perfect truth in Jesus. 
And Father, for those who perhaps have been distant from you or skeptical of you or not sure who you are, but today through the power of your Holy Spirit using the Word of God, they've come under conviction that, no, you know, I need to trust in Christ. I need forgiveness of my sins. I need to be made right with God through this person of Christ. I now see it, and I choose to believe it. Oh, Lord, may that happen now with those who have not made that decision. And Father, for those of us who have, oh, Holy Spirit, fill us once again with a rich understanding of who you are so that as we celebrate this Christmas, we'll have a greater, deeper appreciation of who he is. For we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.